there, Tony here again with the Words and Music of Faith, Hope, and Love podcast, episode 20. Um, if you've been following this podcast for a while, you realize that I actually wasn't here last week, so uh, there's been a two-week gap in between podcast 19 and podcast 20. That's, uh, I had a good reason. I went to Arkansas and sang in my brother's wedding. He got married in, uh, um, I forgot the name of the town, but it's near Ben, uh, let's see, it's near Bentonville. Had to think about that for a second. That's Walmart country, for those of you who don't know. And uh, it was near there, and it was a real beautiful setting, and um, I guess I got to do a pretty good job, and he liked it, and, and it went well. So that's all you need to know. I sang at my brother's wedding, and now I'm back, and I'm catching up. You know how that goes. Um, so I think I better get right into it. I got a a lot of extra writing uh, that I did to try to catch up with things, and I'm not quite caught up, but I'm getting there. Um, I like this first... Uh, Article. It's written based on 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 19 through 23. And it's uh, something I call chameleon Christian. And I think you'll see why. And is it possible to be a chameleon Christian and not compromise the truth? You know, I mean, uh, when you hear about a chameleon, it's, it's a lizard that changes its colors, right? So that sounds like you're changing with things. Well, the simple answer to the question is yes. And the more complicated answer is yes. So by now, you may have figured out that my answer to that question is yes. So let me begin with that word, like I said, chameleon. As you may already know, a chameleon is a lizard with a remarkable ability to change colors. There's even a recent paint company commercial. Have you seen that with two chameleons as the main characters? They walk across color samplers and change their colors as they walk over each one. I think it's a really clever and effective ad. Um, it's funny, and, and I like it, so I, I don't know. It stuck out in my mind. Uh, the word chameleon has taken on different meanings in the English language. We use it to describe someone who's able to change and adapt to their circumstances or uh, you know, external stimuli of any kind. And I think that context applies to my assertion that it's possible to be a chameleon Christian and not compromise the truth. Now, I reached this conclusion by reading what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. And in my New King James Version Bible, which I keep with me at all times because it's a digital form on my iPhone 5, uh, that section has been given the subtitle, Serving All Men. Maybe your New King James Version says that too. Paul talks about how he became as a Jew to the Jews. He also became like those, as he said, without the law, and, to quote him again, became as weak to the weak. In fact, he sums it up like this, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. In other words, Paul was a chameleon Christian. He changed the way he delivered the message of salvation and grace according to the needs of his audience. And he added that he did it for the gospel's sake that I may be a partaker of it with you. That's quoting him. That's why I'm writing all my articles on Paul's writings on my website, the website based on faith, hope, and love. I know that as I share the information with my readers, I get to partake of the same good news myself. And I need the good news as much as anybody. Believe me. What about you? 
Have you considered becoming a chameleon Christian? If so, have you found it beneficial? And if you haven't tried it, have I convinced you to give it a go? I think it's yet another area where we should take Paul's example to heart. Following it up, he talks about one who receives the prize. You know, in the good old days, PPC, which is pre-political correctness, competition meant going up against others in your chosen endeavor with the intention to win. Not just play and have a good time, but you competed because you wanted to win. And winning meant coming in first, or top of class, or number one. You know what? It's good to compete, and it's good to try your best to beat your competitors. And it's not a bad thing when only one receives a prize. The Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian of all time, wrote that very thing. He said, But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He encourages Christians to run, which could be interpreted live, as though we're competing for a prize. Then he describes the prize we might obtain in this world as a perishable crown. It won't last. It'll rust or fade or one day be lost or forgotten. But we Christians obtain an imperishable crown. It's a crown of righteousness that will never rust, fade, or ever go away. When we wrap our minds around that prize, which is the saving grace and knowledge of Jesus, we can run with assurance. We can fight the good fight, and our punches will land where they're needed. The ironic thing is, we're not looking for the fight, but standing for truth means the fight often comes looking for us. As I share this with you, it's good for me to read it, hear it, and take it into my heart too. So as my fingers type the keys that form the words, or my voice records the words, I need to keep telling myself to keep running this race as though only one receives a prize. The good news is, through God's limitless love, everyone has a chance at the prize. Are you living your life in that truth? If not, why not? And I followed that up with um, where I read in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13 about um, Paul describing the examples that we see in the Old Testament. And so I wrote, when bad examples are good. Could there ever be times when bad examples are good in any way? Well, Let me share a few ways I think this is possible, and I'm sure you could think of dozens more, maybe. A father curses at and beats his son, and the son discovers words of wisdom in the Bible and imparts compassion to his own son. Or a mother drinks and belittles her daughter, and the daughter discovers the great women of of the Bible and, and passes on those stories to her own daughters, friends, and other women. Or A famous athlete has a public tirade as a result of drugs and too much adoration for his abilities. Then a young Christian boy sees this and uses it as an opportunity to learn how to focus on others and establish foundations for the less fortunate and create a legacy of giving. In Corinthians, uh, let's see, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, Paul uses examples of the people who followed Moses out of captivity and into the wilderness. He says, quote, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, and that their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They didn't make it to the promised land. Paul shows us how we can use 
what they did as examples of what not to do. And most of them just wanted to eat, drink, have sex, and complain. Ironic, isn't it? After all, if, if all you had to do was eat, drink, and have sex, what would there be to complain about, right? So ponder that for a second. Well, have you noticed anything like that in our present world? Here in America, we have it exponentially easier than our forefathers. Most people can easily and comfortably sit around watching TV or playing video games, eat a cornucopia of foods and snacks, and even believe they can have sex anytime, anywhere, and with anyone they want. Even while they're doing all that, they're complaining about how rough and tough and unfair life is. They falsely believe that if only they could somehow get their hands on the wealth and resources others have attained, they'd miraculously have a more fulfilling life. And that, dear listener, is envy. And it's not only a false assumption, it's a sin. Sin is the word used to describe those things which will lead to death. God doesn't want you to sin because He knows it'll kill you. He designed you. He knows what makes you tick and what makes you sick. That's why He put so many examples of sinful men in the Bible. And that's why I said there are many times when bad examples are good. They can help you avoid becoming yet another statistic. We at least look into it. If you do, I hope you let me know. Now, I found some really good, really good scientific information in a book called uh, In the Beginning by Dr. Walt Brown. If you have never read that book, it is an awesome, it's an awesome science book. Probably the best. I'm, I'm sure it is the best. And he... Let's see, what is it, 131 different ways that he shows how the theory of evolution is an invalid and unworkable theory. And so I decided to write little vignettes, little snippets, uh, based on those 131 uh, reasons that he gives. Now, I dipped into this um, one that he calls natural selection, and he talks about that. And I'm sure you've heard natural selection, survival of the fittest. And he shows how that doesn't work in the favor of um, evolution. You know what chance and circumstance produce? Well, it's certainly not any new species, I'll tell you that right now. There are many characteristics found in the genetic code of the wonderful wide variety of plant and animal life here on our little blue planet. And whether or not a flower will have um, blue triangular petals or yellow round petals is determined by this complex code found inside these animals and plants. But the code doesn't stop with mere appearances. It also provides for a certain amount of adaptation to environmental conditions and circumstances. Now that's actually how natural selection occurs. Think of it this way. When you go to the buffet table to make your selections, you don't create any new foods. You merely select from the food that's already there. And selection in the natural world works much the same way. When stressful environmental conditions occur, nature more or less selects characteristics in the code, also known as the gene pool, that can survive. And in this process, the characteristics that can't survive are eliminated. What does that mean exactly? Well, like I first said, chance and circumstance 
aren't creating any new species. They're just choosing from what's already there, and variations are actually reduced. They're not evolving ever upward. So I totally agree that microevolution occurs. It's nothing more than survival of the fittest, so to speak. But macroevolution does not occur because natural selection prevents it. You get that? Increased complexity isn't found in nature. It's the figment of imagination of so-called scientists who refuse to base their conclusions on what is observed and reproducible. Now, why do you suppose anyone would draw charts of animals showing a gradual increase in complexity when no intermediate fossils have ever been found? Why would any scientist seeking truth ever have a problem with going where the evidence leads? I suspect it's more than a matter of science. It could be a matter of a rebellious heart. But maybe that's just me. I think a lot of it has to do with where people will place their worship. And they don't call it that. I understand that. But it seems like everyone needs some form, some object of worship. Can the God of the Bible be an object of worship? Nope. Can anything else in the whole universe be an object of worship? Well, yeah. And we shouldn't be impressed by any object to the point of thinking we need to worship it. However, a creator who is intelligent enough, powerful enough to stretch out the heavens with his hands and cause things to exist by the mere words he speaks, uh, he's certainly worthy of worship. At least he's worthy of worship if he isn't evil. And, and devoid of righteousness, how could anyone worship a tree and then cut it down and use it for firewood? And how could anyone take gold out of the ground, form it into a calf or eagle or a three-headed rock star, for that matter, and actually worship it? Maybe I'm just dense and stodgy, but I don't get that. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22, Paul calls this sort of thing idolatry. For most of America's history, we've been a country steeped in Christianity. We knew that having idols wasn't a good thing. We knew it wouldn't lead to good things. Now, on the other hand, we even celebrate a TV show about idols. Well, why is this such a big deal to God? Why would He care that we might want to give a lot of attention to a good singer or a movie actor or giant sculpture or work of art? Doesn't he want us to love our neighbor? Well, yeah, but not idolize them or any other object. So what, what makes God so special that he's worthy of worship? The reasons, they're just too numerous to even attempt to list. But suffice it to say that he has proved himself worthy thousands of times over in many stories you'll find in the Bible. And most of all, he sacrificed himself in a most horrendous death to pay our debts. And debts, in this, in this sense, is your sin, what you've done wrong to others and, and even to yourself. Now, you don't have to believe what I'm saying. You can even make fun and, and do your best to reason it all away. But there's only one reason you're even able to contemplate your own existence. God. 
There's no observable science that shows something can come from nothing. For us to even exist, there must have been an uncaused first cause. You can call it the universe. I prefer to defer to the creator of the universe. The creator. An object of worship is still merely an object. And if you tell me all objects are of equal value, I object. Sorry, I could say uh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> I won't. But that's a, a sort of a segue into my next section here. The mutants made me do it. Oh no, the mutants, they made me do it. This is another article based on Walt Brown's reasonings uh, against um, the theory of evolution. On my uh, the article I wrote, the mutants are coming. Oh no, wait, they're already here. And you can see a little picture of a a monkey with a human head swinging on a vine toward a tree. So, all right, uh, stick with me here. Imagine, if you will, and you must, a tiny speck of dust. Hey, that rhymed. We'll call it dust for the sake of creating a word picture. Now, that little speck of dust is just floating around in, uh, could it be space? Or is it a non-dimensional vacuum? I don't know. Either way, this little speck of dust is floating around and begins to feel its oats, so to speak. You see, this little speck of dust is actually a compressed version of all the matter that is about to explode and cause a universe to come into existence. Okay, stick with me still. Because this fairy tale does have a happy ending. After much internal combustion, this little speck of dust actually explodes and a vast universe with possibly thousands or millions of galaxies unfolds into a glorious spectacle that mere human minds can only marvel at. Yep, I ended with at on purpose. Now, here's where it gets good. In a little corner, figuratively speaking, of the universe, a little system of swirling, whirling masses of molten goo begin to spin around one larger mass of molten goo. We now call this our solar system. One particular little mass of molten goo begins to form into something, and we don't know. Hmm, what is it? An orb of interesting colors and combination of delightful chemicals. Suddenly, something, we'll call it lightning, sparks a little puddle of warm goo, and lo and behold, the mutants are born. Or hatched, or seeded, or regurgitated, or something. Anyway, the point is, the mutants are, be are the beginning of life on this little orb of molten goo. Yowzer, this is exciting stuff, Maynard. The mutants immediately get to work on figuring out how to mutate into something better. Whatever better is, it doesn't matter. They just know they have to do it. Okay, so to reduce billions of years into a couple of sentences, the mutants eventually develop internal and external organs, skeletons, fingernails, skin, teeth, eyes, ears, wonder bread, chewing tobacco, murderous video games, rap music, and thieving forms of government. Man. And to this day, according to many scientists, the mutants are still hard at work inside each and every organism. I can't wait to see what they come up with next, can you? Uh, excuse me, I, I gotta remove this speck of dust from under my fingernail. Okay, um, 
I'm going to go right from mutants to the meat market. Mm-hmm. What a deal, huh? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33, Paul tells the Corinthians they can eat whatever is sold in the meat market. What? Why in the world does something like that have to be in the Bible? Well, let me start with a story here. For 13 years, I was a vegetarian. It wasn't for any reason other than health. At the time, I had been given uh, some advice by doctors that my cholesterol was too high. Each time I'd take a little more meat products out of my diet, I'd go back for a cholesterol check, and each time the count would be higher. Well, after 13 years of that, I went to a naturopath who asked me, Hey, do you eat bacon? I said, No. He asked, Why? I'm thinking to myself, Huh? And I said, Well, you know, my cholesterol. It's, I have high cholesterol. And he said, well, what sort of diet did your grandparents live on and how long did they live? And I told him, you know, they ate bacon and eggs and uh, they lived around 80 and, and on one side of the family and, and up to 90 and into their 90s on the other side of the family. He said, eat some bacon. Now that's a doctor I can respect. You know what? I did eat bacon and eventually... Get this, eventually, and it wasn't all that long, my cholesterol levels began to go down. You know what? Now I'm totally confident to eat whatever is sold in the meat market. I don't like it all, but I'm confident to eat it. Now, I told you that quick story because it's one of the ways I relate and remember Paul talking about how meat and, as he said, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. It, in other words, all meat came from animals that God created, you know? And other people can tell you that it's wrong or whatever. If he says it's right, they're wrong. Paul told us how we can eat whatever is set before us, quote, asking no question for conscience's sake. In other words, if we do all to the glory of God, then the food we eat, whether meat or fruit or vegetables, is a gift from God. If you prefer a vegetarian diet, go for it. I wouldn't think to tell you to eat differently. And in the same regard, I'd ask you to leave my food choices to me, too. After all, what is it to you what I eat? Or vice versa. The main thing to remember is this. Men and women have no say over what food is right or wrong. All foods are from God. Our bodies need all sorts of nutrients, and He put everything we need within arm's reach. Just one of the millions of reasons why God gets the glory. And another of those millions of reasons is the tiny, seemingly insignificant little fruit fly. This is going back to uh, Walt Brown's explanations for why the theory of evolution is invalid. And he has a section called Fruit Flies. So I wrote, A fruit fly is a fruit fly is a fruit fly. Fruit flies have a very short lifespan. You probably already knew that. But did you also know that scientists have been breeding fruit flies for a hundred years or so? And that they've observed over 3,000 consecutive generations? And guess what conclusion they've reached after all that? Yep, like I said, a fruit fly is a fruit fly is a fruit fly.
You can check my website and you can see my little drawing of a fruit fly on a banana. He's actually kind of disproportionate to the banana, but you get the point. Through all those generations, they never observed or continue to observe any mutations leading to another organism in any way. In fact, Scientist after scientist published findings that said things like they have never yet seen the emergence of a new organism or even a new enzyme. You get that? You know, on the enzymatic level, they haven't even observed that, much less a new organism. Well, in fact, the more mutations found in the fruit flies, the less viable that generation becomes. And it reminds me of when we used to record cassette tapes directly from vinyl albums. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I've been around that long. <laughs> it doesn't seem all that long, but it's been a while. The first cassette, you know, recording from that vinyl, it was a decent recording. You know, not as high quality as the album, but not bad either. And then you could take it and drive around and listen to your favorite album in your vehicle. That was cool. But if we took that cassette, that same one that we had just made a copy from the album on, and then we took that cassette to make another cassette copy, well, the quality of that second cassette, cassette was very noticeably deteriorated. And all that extra hiss led to the invention of digital recordings and CDs. That's just sort of a, an oversimplified example of how mutations are detrimental, not beneficial. And when you compare the simple design of a, of a cassette to the complex design of even the tiny fruit fly, it shouldn't take a geneticist to see where that leads. No known mutation has ever produced something more complex than the organism in which it originated. And that's why a fruit fly is a fruit fly is a fruit fly. And the same is true for you and I. I know it should be you and me, but then it wouldn't rhyme and I had to make it rhyme. Here's a little point. Fruit flies only live about 11 days. They're yet another reason why God's existence can so clearly be seen. And that brings me to the close of uh, the Words and Music of Faith, Hope, and Love podcast, episode 20. I want to remind you and encourage you to go and read these articles anytime you want. And please share them with uh, anyone and everyone. Share them with people who are Christians, believers, and who aren't. Uh, I would love for those who disagree to be reading this, and who knows, maybe their hearts could be softened. That, that would be awesome. Just TonyFunderburk.com, T-O-N-Y-F-U-N-D-E-R-B-U-R-K, TonyFunderburk.com, and right there on the very first page are links to uh, all the blog posts, you can see the excerpts and all my goofy pictures that I draw and things like that and access to uh, subscribe to this podcast. And it's, it's just real easy right there. Even subscribe to my newsletter where you can get um, information. Some of the things that you find in there aren't found anywhere else. So I encourage you to sign up for that if you haven't and tell others about that too. And uh, I have plans to start adding some new music. I want to uh, complete some songs that I've been working on and and share those with you and um, I could use all of your encouragement I can get so uh, stick with me on that too okay and watch for that and hopefully I'll have that before um, I don't know the next millennium so this is Tony Funderburg uh, 
wishing you a great Veterans Day. Uh, get out there and thank the veterans. And uh, uh, I'll talk to you next time. And until then, God bless. <laughs>